listening to the Sit Down Standout Show, the podcast where people with all abilities and challenges can stand out from the rest, even if they've got to sit down to do it. I'm Ben and Dykstra, the Rolling Dragon, and it's time for this show to take flight. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Sit Down Standout Show, the podcast that gives people with all abilities and challenges the chance to stand out from the rest, even if they have to sit down to do it. I am the Rolling Dragon, Ben and Dykstra, and for this week's episode, I have another wonderful guest from across the pond in jolly old England. She has <laughs> starred in a number of musicals and even been in the feature film Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. But hopefully, she can help us find the magic within us all when it comes to dealing with mental health issues like high anxiety, autism, and ADHD. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Amy Kelland. Amy, how are you? Hello, I'm good, thank you. <laughs> well, it is a pleasure to have you on for this week's episode. Now, to get us started, I remember listening to your audition tape, and you had mentioned that you first discovered that you had mental health issues in a rather unfortunate way in about ninth grade with a high-level anxiety attack. Yeah. But once you were diagnosed with high anxiety, autism, and ADHD, can you talk us through your initial reaction? Because depending on the individual, everyone reacts differently. For some people, it's fear. For others, it could be shame. And for others, things might just fall into place where they go, oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah, of course. Um, I think for me, the main emotion was surprise. Um, even though I suppose by the time that I actually got that diagnosis, I'd already basically assumed I had it because at least um, here you have to go through a very long waiting period to actually get to that diagnosis um, point. But when it was first suggested to me that I might have autism, um, which was really the first thing, um, I, I was surprised because it happened, which this is ironic, actually. Um, it kind of was a special interest of mine growing up was um, special educational needs and children with SEN and autism. Um, my mum worked as what they call a SENCO here. So that's a special educational needs coordinator for schools. Um, it was something we always talked about. I'd even done a survey recently at my secondary school for um, a mental health charity or something like it, a research paper where people without autism were supposed to say what they knew about autism. The idea was to show that people wouldn't know them. Um, so I probably, ske <laughs> I probably skewed that research study because it turns out I did have autism. <laughs> I didn't know though. So I very much saw it, um, even though I always had this understanding of what it was on a more complex level and a uh, sympathy almost for people that had it. I think that's what was so weird for me when I realized that I had it because even when you're a sympathetic and kind person who is not disabled, you still, I think you still think of people who are disabled as someone else, some, a different group, an otherization. Um, you know, even charity programs that we watch, like, um, I try to think of a good example, maybe like comic relief or something. You watch it and you feel like, wow, we're doing this amazing thing for people with disabilities. But it also kind of makes you think like there's someone else and you don't. It's cheesy because people say it, but you truly don't think things will happen to you. 
And I think what was even weirder about coming to terms with my identity is that my disability didn't even happen to me. It turned out it was there all along and I just didn't know. Right. Which is why I think it was important that you discovered at a young age the desire to help other people with autism and all sorts of unique abilities because it it gave you a different perspective when you realized, okay, I do have autism, I do have ADHD. That almost sounds almost like, wow, I could definitely understand the irony in that situation. But it also kind of shows you, wow, things could be hiding inside us that we have no idea about. Like I've known about my cerebral palsy my whole life, Mm. but I didn't know I had anxiety until I was in like 11th grade and all these major life changes were happening. Mm. So it's amazing what could be lurking underneath. Yeah. Yeah. It's (laughs) definitely, I like that characterization. Um, Yeah. It's definitely strange. I think now looking back, I'll even have conversations with my mum about things and she'll just sort of turn to me, you know, in the middle of a funny story about my childhood and she'll go, why didn't I realize you were autistic? You know, it's my job to recommend people for children for diagnosis for my whole life. And I never saw it in you. But now looking back at all these memories, it's so obvious. And I think that's, I think that's something that can happen. Um, for neurodivergent children, especially um, women and girls with autism, is that it does go um, underdiagnosed or has definitely in the past. I know we've seen a a rise of diagnosis recently, which is good. But as a child, people people are aware of my idiosyncrasies um, because I was a high achiever um, in grades. And I think if you're not struggling with grades in school, teachers don't see you as struggling at all, even though mentally I always put a lot of pressure on myself more than I think most um, primary school children do. Right. And it's hard for adults to see someone struggling on the inside if everything on the outside seems all rosy. Yeah. But speaking of the struggle, you had to get privately diagnosed. Now, I'm in Canada, so the United Kingdom's way of doing things might be a bit different. But when you say you were privately diagnosed, what do you mean that you had to get privately diagnosed? Because to me, that means, oh, you go to your family doctor to get a diagnosis, or you go to a special facility (laughs) to try to figure that out. But can you kind of take us through the journey of, okay, when did uh, we realize, okay, we had all of this where do we go from here? Yeah, of course. So um, a specialist facility is probably the best. Um, that is a that is quite close to what I would call it. Um, obviously, here in the UK, we have the NHS. So that means that all of our healthcare is government and tax funded. So essentially free. Um, well, not all of our healthcare, but that's <laughs> a story for another day. But generally speaking, things are expected to be free. Um, So when you're under 18, which is the age you become a legal adult here, um, you go to a different service than for adults. So uh, my main experience is with the underage mental health service. I'm an adult now, but I don't have um, NHS help. So that service is called CAMS. Um, I'm trying to remember what it stands for. I can't remember, but something children, young adults, mental health services, something like that. 
um, you go there and it can be hard to even get into cams. You have to be recommended by a qualified um, teacher, basically, or doctor. I think from, for me, what happened was my school recommended I spoke to them after I started having panic attacks and struggling to come into school. And then they had to send a referral to my GP. So that's my family doctor. Um, and then she had to send a referral to CAMS. So all of that already was taking months. Um, and a lot of it wouldn't have been followed up if, unfortunately, if it wasn't for my mum's persistence, which I think is um, a big problem here where a lot of these services for people who are struggling would be so inaccessible for anyone who's struggling alone or maybe has learning or reading difficulties to get to. Because the only reason that I had any of this help was because my mum advocated for me on the phone and through letters over and over again. And I could never have done it for myself. Um, but I managed to get there. I managed to get to CAMS. Um, and that involves going to see a psychiatrist. Um, at first, my experience was it would be a random psychiatrist or psychologist every time, not someone that I knew. Um, I would go for reviews. They would talk to me. And then I got um, one particular psychiatrist who was incredibly kind. Uh, he was the best one I'd met. I hadn't had a nice experience with the others that I'd met particularly. I didn't really feel that they understood. Um, and he said that he thought that I should be referred for an autism diagnosis. And then he said, if you want to have one on the NHS, you may have to wait up to 18 months and we can't start to give you any treatment um, until you have the diagnosis and in school. And obviously, um, 18 months is not super long compared to what some people have to wait to to get answers about their health. Uh, but it is too long when you're in the middle of an educational crisis and how you're going to get help at school. So we decided that wasn't long enough and we were incredibly privileged enough to be able to pay mm -hmm. for the diagnosis privately. So what I mean by privately is that we had to pay money to go and get that diagnosis. But because we chose to do that, we were able to do it in two months. And I went to the Lorna Wing Centre here in England, which is um, a place that has specialised for many years in the diagnosis of women and girls with autism. Okay. It, wow. 18 months that is ridiculous yeah yeah <laughs> i i can uh first of all shout out to your mother for being so persistent with writing <laughs> those letters yeah my mother is the same way so with the exception of the ridiculously long waiting lengths and having to pay for that kind of a service to get a private diagnosis out of pocket what do you think needs to be improved in the united kingdom's uh mental health system I tried to think of a somewhat condensed answer because um, through my own experiences and talking to other people, I do think there's a lot. I think it's important to recognize there are some really um, great mental health nurses and my sister struggles with some mental health problems herself. She's an adult, has lived um, away from home for a long time, but she gets support and care every week funded by the government to come to her house and help her with tasks. So there are there are really good parts for some people, but again, she had my mum to advocate for her, and things things can be really hard um, like that. And my my experience at CAMS after I got my diagnosis was not that much more positive. I think the biggest thing that could help would be more funding um, and much better training, which comes along with funding. I'm sure it's a linked problem. Um, 
for example, once I had my autism diagnosis, I went back to them and I said, now I have this, what kind of treatment can I get? And I had been on a list for, again, about, I think, two years for what is called CBT, um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and so I got to the top of this list and my psychiatrist said, so there's one person who does CBT for our entire district. I think it was for our whole county on the NHS. So that's a significant area um, of towns that my area only had one person who could do CBT therapy at the time. He said, honestly, I don't think it will be that helpful for you because you have autism and CBT doesn't really work for people with autism because it essentially requires a prior talent at labeling your own emotions and understanding them, which is something that I struggle with and lots of autistic people do. So in the end, after being on the long waiting list, I chose to give up my place because I felt that I'd rather someone else got it who would benefit more from it. So I never received um, therapy from that service, even though my treatment plan was supposed to be medication and therapy. So I was given uh, the medication sertraline, which I think is more commonly known as Zoloft um, in the States. Don't know about Canada. <laughs> and it's a antidepressant, but I was prescribed it at a level that was more as an anti-anxiety medication. Um, and I was supposed to have that with therapy. And it's also not officially licensed here for under 18s, or it wasn't when I was given it. I don't know how things have progressed. So basically how it worked is I had to sign a waiver saying that I agreed to take this medication because the NHS could prescribe it to me, but you had to sign a form basically saying you understood that the UK hadn't actually sanctioned it for use on people my age, because we don't know what it does to brains. Um, and I think that sort of thing, that ending up being all I got from the NHS was a medication that wasn't, hasn't been, I don't want to imply it's unsafe. I think it's a really good medication um, for a lot of people. It helped me incredibly to access other services from other charities unrelated to the NHS of therapy and counseling, as well as private therapy. Um, and just to be able to get out the house enough to do those things because I was so anxious. So I think it helped me immensely. But after I turned 18, uh, well, actually earlier than that, when my personal psychiatrist from CAMS left um, to do something else, he left the service, I was just forgotten about. Um, I never received any more follow-ups or reviews for my medication. And now the only review I get is a phone call with a pharmacist um, once a year. And they are qualified, but I don't, feel that it's enough. And when I talk to my doctor about it, uh, once again, she's a very qualified doctor, very lovely, but they're not specialists in mental health, like psychiatrists. And they're the people who are in charge of my medication. And um, more recently, when I had my ADHD diagnosis, and I talked about the fact that my doctor had put up my medication when I was thinking about coming off of it, um, he, the actual, psych uh, the ADHD psychiatrist actually disagreed with that. So now I'm trying to come off of it, which is a very difficult thing to do. And sorry, I want a bit of a ramble there, which is part of my ADHD. But <laughs> what I what I was trying to think of in my mind is the things that I think need to improve is the funding and the training and the integration of it into every NHS service, because the disconnect between CAMS and those mental health services and your regular GP and doctor for me at least, is quite big. So they can send emails back and forth, but there's not 
there's not those um, specially trained mental health professionals in most practices. You, you have to really seek them out. And even then, a lot of people I know, their experience was being told, you know, just take a bath or go for a walk or have a cup of tea. And it was it was never really enough. And I think I experienced some of that myself. Yeah. I think a lot of people dealing with a mental health issue, they experience that, oh, go take a bath, go outside and run in the grass. <laughs> Uh, that's a little easier said than done when we feel like the world is falling apart inside our own brains. <laughs> As someone with high anxiety myself, I can totally understand that you have been through quite a journey, and I so appreciate you being honest and open about that. Yeah. Are you looking to hire? Check out JobQuest. JobQuest helps people who are facing employment barriers find jobs by providing coaching, on-the-job training, and follow-up support. So when you hire someone through JobQuest, you know you're hiring a reliable, high-quality employee. And JobQuest will help match your needs to the strengths of potential employees. So you'll also know that you're hiring the right fit. JobQuest is a division of Community Living Trent Highlands. Find out more at clth.ca today. Hey, my fellow standouts, it's the Rolling Dragon, Ben and Dykstra, here to ask you a couple of questions as we've reached the halfway point in our program. Has life thrown you a curveball? Have you lived with what many people would consider unfortunate circumstances or unique challenges? How have you turned them around into something positive for yourself and for others? Is it your time to stand out from the rest? Well then... Register as a guest at www.rollingdragonmedia.com and get ready to stand out from the rest. And now, for the rest of our story. So I want to take a break from the medical side of things for a second and talk about your creativity because you have participated in a lot of musicals, you're working on trying to get into films. Um... Do you think having autism has helped you as far as being creative and trying to put yourself out there? Because I often feel that for every disability a person is given, usually there's a, a positive trait that comes with it. Yeah. Okay. So this is actually a question that I um, ask myself a lot, to be honest. Um, where does autism end and I begin, for example? And I think the slightly complex for even me to understand our answer is that it, it doesn't there's not a separation it's the kind of mental health um disorder or trait there's a lot of debate at the moment even as what to classify it as that is inseparable from my personality it is part of me and if I didn't have it mm -hmm. I'd have a different personality so in one way it's sort of like all of my creativity is linked to my autism because it's who I am um, but I think on a more specific traits affecting things level, uh, for me, being autistic means being highly, highly empathetic. Um, there's sort of a misconception that comes from a, a stereotype of what people um, and medical professionals used to believe autism was, that people with autism tend to um, have quite low empathy. But the more accurate... Um, sorry, the truth of that is that people with autism often struggle with empathy, but it can go both ways to both extremes. So I have friends who really struggle to empathize with other people at all. 
Whereas I struggle because I empathize so strongly with other people. It can really affect my mood and my conversations with them, etc. So I think for being an actor, that's incredibly useful. And it makes me able to imagine um, exactly how my character might be feeling. And I, yeah, so I really like that part about it. <laughs> yeah, you're able to express yourself emotionally on a greater level thanks to that understanding. Mm. And I want to remind all of our listeners here that autism is an entire spectrum. There is no guarantee of what level of autism a person that is born with it will have. It could be high empathy, it could be low empathy. But it takes years to try to uncover those things because we can't see what's inside of a person's mind. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly good um, summary. <laughs> so you were in a big Warner Brothers film, a <laughs> Magic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Now, I've I haven't seen it, honestly, but you you played the role of an orphan in that film. Can you kind of describe? how that feeling was because for me i probably would have been overwhelmed to be so young and a part of such a major production yeah of course um so for everyone listening you can find me i was an extra i didn't say anything i could have said something you didn't know so when you showed up on the day they said some of the extras will get lines um I was somewhat rejected in favor of some of the cuter children, which is understandable for lines, but I was there. So if you look in the orphanage scene, I am the awkwardly tall girl because this was, I was in year seven, which means about age 11. I was very awkwardly tall. I was an early bloomer, uh, <laughs> as we say here. Um, I had a really awkward haircut that they gave me for the thing and it's supposed to be 1920s. Um, and you can just see me standing in the back of one scene. Although I will say I made it into a picture book and a sticker book. So, you know, still pretty proud nice. of that one. Um, I got into it through my drama club that was a small drama club in my village. Um, but they were associated with an agency uh, called Anne Costa Agencies for Children. Um, and as a member of the drama club, if you wanted to, you could sign up to this agency for a small fee. So I did. And I got this email to do this. Um, now, when you say about being in such a big production, definitely when I arrived, I realized that it was something big. However, I had no idea it was part of the Harry Potter franchise because they don't tell you. Um, it is on an incredibly need-to-know basis for these giant films. I even remember helicopters flying overhead because they were trying to get news and everyone like shouting and shutting everything down. And everyone was trying to get a piece of this. So they didn't tell any extras anything about the production. I think the working title was something like The Man with the Suitcase. Um, the main character in the film carries a suitcase and his magical beasts like live inside of it. It's kind of like a TARDIS situation. <laughs> Um, but I had no idea what it was and I had no idea who I was going to play showing up, which was terrifying and super exhilarating. I felt very cool. I missed the second week of going to secondary school, which in hindsight probably wasn't the best idea for making new friends and doing everything. But I did have a very cool fun fact to tell about myself in every introductions class after that. Um, and being there was more than anything when you're actually on set as an extra like that and not being told anything boring for most of the days I spent four days on set and three of those days were just sitting in a room with some really broken old games 
not being allowed our phones or devices because then we might share confidential information. Um, but so exciting to actually be on the set and film scenes. Yeah, I was, I... Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I could totally understand that. Like, it's one of those things where in the moment, it's kind of just going to work. Yeah. And then once it's done, you look back and you go, holy crap, I was a part of this. Yeah, well, exactly. And at the time, I was kind of naive, really. I had no idea that now, looking back, I'm like, wow, what an incredibly high-level budget production. But at the time, I was just sort of like, well, maybe this is how all films are, because it was the first time I'd ever been on a film set. So I had no idea it was such a big thing. I mean, I should have known, because we went past the um, Harry Potter world when we went into the studios on the bus every day. <laughs> I'll admit myself that after number seven, I was kind of burned out on <laughs> yeah. Harry Potter, which is why I, I didn't watch those films. But speaking of furthering your career as an actress, mm. you mentioned in your audition tape that one of your goals is to be on a Britcom or a British comedy. Mm. Now, I've seen a few British comedies, Mrs. Brown's Boys, Last of the Midsummer Wine. Now, I'm curious from your point of view why you want to be on British comedies. Well, the simple answer is because it's my favorite thing to watch. <laughs> um, I absolutely love them. I like Ghosts, BBC Ghosts. Um, I like Afterlife the on Netflix. After, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah that's that on one. Netflix. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I like probably a bunch of other things. The things you named are classics, by the way. Those are there with like porridge, like the older British comedies, and I love those too. But I think um current British comedies are just something that appeals to me so much. Um, there are American comedies I like as well. I thought you did the not you, you're Canadian. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I thought the US did the office better, actually, than the UK. So I like that. And I like Parks and Rec. Um, anything wacky and absurdist is what I really enjoy. I find um, the sort of improvised dialogue, the very real feeling um, dialogue and interactions between people, even if the concept is ridiculous, like ghosts, where she's the only person who can see a bunch of ghosts that live in her house. And yet it really emotionally appeals in both um, tugging on your heartstrings and making you laugh out loud. And it's just fun. The people who are creating it are there to have fun and give other people fun. And I think a lot of training for acting and being in the acting industry is very serious. Everyone takes themselves very seriously. You do a lot of exercises where you have to access your past trauma and relive it and try to act things out from it even I've done before on courses um and there's a lot of serious reflection on whether this is a viable career obviously because that's a difficult thing to get into and being told everything that's wrong with you to try and correct and being told what box you should be in for casting and you know your casting type what you need to keep yourself looking like and what I like about comedy shows is when I watch them, I get the feeling that even though people worked seriously hard to be there, when they're there, they're just having fun instead of stressed out. And I hear too many interviews, I think, now from actors about these traumatic scenes that they had to film. Like, um, is it Jennifer Lawrence? I'm trying to remember. An actor recently was in a film, I think, called Mother or something like that. And she said it was like the most traumatic thing she'd done doing the scene where she comes down and finds something horrible happening to her baby. and. Uh, I've heard similar things about the set of the um, the weekend's new show, The Idol, 
things like that where people are just traumatized by the experience of being in acting just for the sake of having these serious dramatic scenes and i think even though i like high drama that's why a comedy is like my ultimate thing to do because people are just there to have fun <laughs> and create something nice Oh, yeah, I totally understand that. You want to find that balance where you can be a creative artist, yet at the same time, not come home stressed out from the experience of what you had to film on set. You want to be able to laugh and say, you know what I did today? It was hilarious. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of creativity, alongside your family, which I'm sure play a big inspiration in your life, who are you inspired by as far as performers for what you're doing? Wow, that is a great question. And I'm very conveniently placed next to a board I made of people who inspire me. So I have to take a look over there and tell you who's on there. Okay, we've got Robin Williams, of course, an absolute classic in comedy. I get emotional just talking about him or looking at old performances. Um, Will Forte is someone who I enjoy the comedic acting of a lot. I feel like his name is not that of a big celebrity name you hear a lot of the time, but you've probably seen him in something. Uh, he was in The Last Man on Earth. He was in Sweet Tooth. Um, and definitely a lot of other things that I can't think of right now. Uh, I like Kristen Scholl. I think that's how you say her name. She voices Louise on Bob's Burgers, Mabel in Gravity Falls, um, pretty much every young female character in any other wacky cartoon show <laughs> you've seen. Um, I like her a lot. Tina Fey uh, and everyone from the group, which I believe call themselves the Six Idiots, even though they're incredibly smart um, comedy writers who made Horrible Histories and Ghosts, which are cult classics here in the UK. <laughs> oh, I love Horrible Histories. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what what have you got coming up or what are you planning to do next from a performer standpoint? Yeah, so the big thing that's coming up for me soon in a month, terrified and exciting, um, is that I'm going to Italia Conti Drama School. So I'm going to be studying what I believe is called a Certificate of Higher Education, uh, Introduction to Acting. I've been cast in an upcoming independent film called Dancing in the Wind. Uh, it's a film about an autistic boy who loves to dance, and I'm sort of his love interest. Uh, and I don't have any dates for when that's filming, but hopefully it will be out next year. I mean, creatives all know that things always take longer than they're expected to, but <laughs> that's the hope. That is absolutely incredible. I am so happy for you. Thank you. So... Going back to autism and ADHD, with the exception of doctors, where did you go and where can our listeners go if they want to learn more information about those things? Wow. Okay. Great question. Um, the first sort of official place that comes to mind is <laughs> Mind. Um, there's a charity called Mind. I think it's mind.co.uk here. Uh, and I've found that they are one of the websites that has the most helpful articles to me. They have specific articles from people who've actually experienced these conditions about things like being in relationships, you know, romantic relationships with someone coming off of medication or who has ADHD and 
how to go to university with autism and things like that. Like they have helpful and specific articles if you have it, but they also have articles specifically aimed at family and friends of people who have it and people who want to find out more to support people in their lives and how to look after yourself as a carer for someone with mental disabilities. And I think that's really important. That is absolutely incredible. We will have links to those in the show notes below. But to finish off this week's episode, Amy, I want to ask, where can our listeners find you if they want to check out some of the incredible work that you're doing? <laughs> of course. So um, on Instagram, I'm Amy underscore Kelland. Uh, on YouTube, I'm Amy Kelland. On TikTok, I'm Aspergoth, I believe. It's sort of a older username there um yeah well amy it has been an incredible adventure to hear your story and it's a story to me of perseverance to come from having anxiety attacks in the middle of the school day to being able to go on to one of the most prestigious drama schools in the country to further your dreams as a performer i think that this is definitely a magical episode that's going to wrap us up for this week's edition of the Sit Down Standout Show. She is Amy Kellen. I am the Rolling Dragon, Ben and Dykstra. And until next time, keep calm and roll on.